Welcome to the Changing Construction podcast brought to you by Mail Manager, the Outlook add-in created by Arup to help companies get control of their email. Thanks to all of the listeners for joining us for this episode. What we're trying to do is pull together some of the biggest and best names in, in the built environment to help businesses and individuals survive and thrive through what is undoubtedly unprecedented times. Uh, for that reason, I'm delighted to be joined by BIM guru, Gavin Crump. Uh, hi, uh, hi, Gavin. Thanks very much for, for, for joining us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. Um, for people who haven't kind of come across you before, uh, just provide a bit of introduction to who you are and um, what you do. Sure, can do. So um, I've been in the architectural industry in Australia for about 10 years now, or the architecture, engineering, construction industry, or AEC, as we shorthand it to. And I've more or less worked my way up from a technical role through a coordinator pathway onto BIM management. So I've been using BIM software most of my career. And this sort of ended up eventuating into a bit of a passion for me in what I really enjoy in AEC, which is taking advantage of workflows and systems and you know, th- thinking quite forwardly in how we can apply BIM to um, some of the challenges that we, we find in our industry. Eventually, this eventuated in me launching a, a YouTube channel and also a consulting business, BIM Guru, which I guess has sort of become my my name or moniker that people know me as in the industry um, informally. So yeah, I really look forward to talking about all these things that I'm working on with you today. From just, I suppose, out, out of interest, there's obviously lots of people have got YouTube channels out there and lots of people have push kind of videos out there. But one of the things which I noticed from yours is it's really, really uh, actionable stuff which can help, you know, anyone who's kind of working in Revit or, or Dynamo just work smarter, really. Um, where do you think the sort of traction and interest has, has come from in the content which you um, put out there? I sort of started my channel just because a lot of the videos out there didn't really go very in-depth or they went in-depth in a way that maybe we wouldn't use in the industry commonly. So, so my motivation with all my content was really to create sort of professionally grounded workflows, but also to expose the workflows as deeply as possible so that they could follow along at home with their programs and eventually, you know, have a script or a a workflow or a solution that they could take back to their actual job and deploy. And I think that's been probably the the driving factor behind the the channel's um, growth. So I guess it's like, it's a level of authenticity and also, you know, that they leave with something they can, they can use rather than just someone showing them, you know, pressing a button and going, look how, look how good I am. It's more about me saying, look how good you can be. Yeah. So that's sort of, I think what maybe, maybe made it successful. Okay, yeah, so much more emphasis on something kind of detailed, really actionable, which somebody could could just apply. And I think I think there's lots of people who scratch their heads with uh, platforms like Revit. So I can see why I can see why there's been some traction. Now, I suppose starting with some of the problems and challenges you see, as well as help, as well as you know, are passionate about addressing. When speaking to people, whether it's in a BIM leadership role or in a design management role of a company, what are the kind of challenges which you experience? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of challenges that I guess AEC professionals face from many directions, not just BIM, but I guess most of the problems I discuss with other BIM professionals that typically revolve around around BIM and you know adoption and how, how it can impact our roles and some of the challenges that come with that. I think probably one of the biggest ones that a lot of BIM managers and BIM professionals relate to is that BIM does require quite a lot of setup and templating and you know setting things up to be used on multiple projects at the same time. But, but at, at the same time, there's this pressure in companies who not necessarily put time towards things that can't be directly billed to a project. Or we sometimes call them non-billable hours. And that sort of leads to this sort of 
double pronged issue that you know we need things to make our project successful outside the project but we need projects in order to give us time to to go back and develop templates so sometimes that can lead to this idea of sort of no time for thinking and only time for project i think that's probably one of the one of the biggest challenges that most BIM managers suffer with and even i've you know been in that position myself as a BIM manager and i think i guess on the back of that as well usually you can only really put time into these non-billable hours if you can justify to an executive level of the company that it's worthwhile to investors' time that they will get long-term return on what they've decided to, to invest in. So, you know, justifying the return on investment is quite challenging. So there's a lot of people trying to develop tools and methods that can actually track and, and display targets in a visual um, sort of drill-down dial so that you can take it to a board and say, listen, this, this will save you money and it will save you time and it will give you more competitive edge. Um, but that can be a real, a real challenge. And I guess that's sort of amplified by this, this resistance to change, sort of the old dogs, new tricks mentality that sort of has bogged down our industry quite a bit since technology really came in and started, started trying to change how we work. And I think like we are changing over time, but, but there's still like a pretty, pretty solid resistance from certain levels of the industry. So that is, you know, probably all just tying this all together. So ultimately, it's this need for, for changing organizations, but also as well as that sort of harboring these professionals that can also facilitate the change. So BIM managers and also consultants and in-house specialists like VR, AR, people that can really facilitate those quite complex workflows. And ultimately, I guess, you know, also take advantage of data in BIM. So, so accentuating the I in BIM, the, the information aspect of it, rather than just focusing on, you know, the, the process of modeling or the process of construction, but sort of holistically pulling it all together. So they're probably the main, the main challenges that I see and sort of hear from other professionals on. And I can definitely relate to, you know, anyone out there that's having those challenges too. Yeah, certainly I think no time for strategy mm-hmm. is a really, really kind of valid point, which I know lots mm-hmm. of BIM leaders out there will relate to. There's, yeah. It's a kind of strange role in many ways because often there's an emphasis on winning work uh, d- mm-hmm. as well as delivering work and then probably also a fair bit of training and yeah. areas like strategy process kind of the number one priority all, all of the time anyway. Yeah, the, the um, machine runs on money, I guess, ultimately. That's the... The biggest challenge and you know whilst we're all in it for the passion i guess at the same time there's a there's an ultimate drive behind what what really keeps the company going the, the oil of the machine is the money because i guess we can't pay our employees without it but it's just this idea that we do have to sort of jump into the unknown a little bit because you know you can only really make the true profits by you know being the leaders of change and taking that first risk and being the the person that sort of leads the parade rather than follows it so yeah, it can be a, can be a bit of a challenging one for companies forecast and, and and sort of I guess give into. And in terms of the iron bin, that's something which I suppose like B and M get get talked about a bit. But why why do you think that that is um, is is maybe uh, kind of hiding behind the other two? Yeah, I think because um, initially that the, the really radical, obviously discernible change that BIM brings is that it is three D. That was probably the initial draw card is it's pretty hard to show a client a database and have them understand exactly what they're really looking at. But if you show them like a 3D model over a 2D drawing, they can immediately understand that they're looking at something quite different. So I think that was probably like the initial holdback of why information was emphasized in BIM. And I think because maybe the technology wasn't necessarily 
all at the same point when BIM really first came out. Like we didn't have all these amazing, you know, VR and AR viewers now that we're taking advantage of that the, the consequence of bad information wasn't quite as obvious. It was more so the drawings where you saw that rather than actually people being immersed in the in an information rich environment. So if you looked at a like a, a PDF drawing that a BIM model generated and maybe half of it was just manual text, you wouldn't know. But if you went into like a 3D model with a pair of AR specs on and suddenly all those things that people have drawn in 2D aren't visible because they're not in 3D, you suddenly understand, hey, we're missing a lot of valuable information here. Like, you know, I can't see paint on my wall. Why can't I see paint? Because my drawing says, you know, it's painted, but you know, you go in the model and suddenly it's not there. I think that probably also sort of just sort of highlighted that, that importance for embedding this information in object. And also just we're seeing a, a rise in programming in architecture as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about today as well. And I think these are all sort of combining to really bring information to the forefront in BIM. Okay, so if anyone listening kind of relates to not having as much time for strategy, sometimes struggling to uh, justify return on investment uh, for, for projects as well as upskilling new staff and getting your organisation to kind of appreciate the iron BIM, we're going to talk about how we can help address some of those things. So in terms of, I suppose, focusing on the information management and the, I suppose, the, what do you see as the path forward in this area? Yeah, I mean, most companies that I've worked in or clients that I've helped when it comes to the aspect of information, usually the first thing that has to be done is really just to establish what information you're looking for and how you're going to use it. I think if you don't have those two things clearly outlined, it's pretty hard to to leverage information effectively. You You either end up with the phenomenon of no information because no one looked for it or no one set it up or you end up with the too much information and, and no idea what to do with it. You know, the, the concept of big data or a big, a big dump of data that no one actually can do anything with because it doesn't have a structure or it doesn't have an organizational standard. So I think if you, if you establish like the why of, of information, I think that's, that's the best part to begin with. And then, then the how is probably like where to follow. So, you know, what is your data structure? How are you going to code your elements? Are you going to follow, follow like an industry coding standard, such as like a uni-class system that, that, you know, is pretty commonly used in some countries, but not others. So I think those two steps are pretty crucial just to even really take on the, the I and BIM seriously at an organizational level. And one of the things which I've noticed you talk about is the role computational design can also play in this, which probably isn't isn't always talked about or, or isn't isn't really talked about by anyone at the moment. So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So I guess um for anyone out there that doesn't really know what I what I mean when I say computational design or coding or programming, it's really the ability to use a computer to enhance how we work um, more meaningfully than just typing on a keyboard and sending commands to a processor, like, you know, writing a Word document. It's more about using intelligent commands. Like, you know, when you, when you search Google, for example, you're, you're obviously engaging in a bit of a computationally fueled process because Google uses all these crazy algorithms to determine, you know, what we're really looking for. And similarly, we can really apply some of these ideas to, to architectural workflows or just engineering construction workflows. Anything that has you know, a repetitive process or a predictable process. We're finding that there's new tools, well, tools that might've been around a little while in some cases that are really able to, to streamline how we interact with, with computers to generate the outcome that we're looking for. So, you know, people might know programs like Grasshopper or more recently Dynamo, which enable this approach of computational design and also computational logic 
to how we can, you know, set up our projects and process the data within them to generate sort of semi-predictable outcomes. So, you know, essentially build scripts that can can connect us from A to B without us having to necessarily, you know, do it all ourselves. So it's quite a quite an interesting time that, you know, we find ourselves in where where we can sort of semi-automate what we do in, in a similar way to how other industries have already sort of, you know, been way ahead of architecture in this this way of thinking. So any any industry that really delves quite heavily into computer programming would know that, you know, there's so many shortcuts you can take when you use computers or even just industries that use robotics, such as, you know, car manufacturers, where obviously these machines are built to to work in very repetitive, predictable cycles. And, you know, we can apply similar logic to some of our more repetitive and predictable processes. This is a probably a bit uh, difficult question to answer, but in terms of the, what do you think is the, the kind of percentage of tasks, just as a range, because it will obviously vary based on the project, so kind of from low to high, what percentage of tasks relating to a model do you think could be automated through um, effective, effective programming? So I think there's probably like three types of processes that we usually do in the in the form of modeling or BIM modeling. One of them is creating or setting things up. Another is is modifying elements and running processes across them that have already been set up. And then the final one is actually taking that model and its data and taking it somewhere else and doing something meaningful with it, like extracting a whole bunch of data to a database. And I mean, all three of those things you can use a model for, um, I guess another one, sorry, is, is analyzing a model too. So running you know, weather studies across it, for example. But, but all of these things, I would say, you know, maybe I'd say at least, you know, 25% can probably be automated if not heavily streamlined. It's probably more than that even. It's just that there's, there's still like a growing movement here. So it's been hard to realize how much everyone can do it. I guess the bigger challenge is, you know, how many people will do it. It's more, more the, the challenge that I think we're facing right now that, you know, some people are quite resistant, especially in architecture, to the concepts that you can put your pen down and, and press some buttons and <clears throat> suddenly a computer that, you know, thinks how many times faster than we do, even though the human brain is faster than a computer, obviously the way we use it is based on our eyes and our senses that operate much slower. So the idea that a computer can actually sort of outpace us comes to, you know, forming a judgment or doing something can be quite confronting for a, an architect, especially because we are quite you know, passionate and creative and, you know, we want to be the source of our creativity. So probably, I'd say about 25%, maybe, but it's, it's a really hard question to put a solid number on. And yeah, I think it's probably more potentially. Yeah, but a, a really noticeable, obvious amount, uh, I suppose, in terms of... Uh, yeah, definitely yeah. enough to justify exploring it for sure. I suppose just breaking down one of the objections to that, which you've just mentioned, which is that kind of initial scepticism, if you like. I mean, is the answer to that that it actually frees up the frees up a designer to focus more on the bits which are bespoke and which can't be automated? Yeah, probably the perfect way of putting it. Like usually if I ever get someone coming to me saying that, you know, this computation is a waste of time, why are we doing it? I just give them an example of something very mundane that they probably do manually because you don't have to automate the fun stuff. You can just automate the boring stuff. And I say, sure, maybe you don't want a program to tell you how to lay out a room, but, but maybe do you really want to go on dimension and document that room? Is that really what you went into architecture for? Probably not. You probably came here to do design rather than, you know, just put some annotations on a drawing or set up some views and put them onto sheets. There's, there's a lot of tasks that, you know, I think like even the most passionate architect could not 
you know, realistically enjoy over the pursuit of, you know, the more human driven aspects of design, such as, you know, talking to our clients and driving ideas out of them and, and, you know, engaging in meetings and coordinating with people effectively. I think ultimately computation's potential and its goal, as you said, it's to free up time so that we can actually do like our job ultimately before software came and, you know, changed how we have to work and deliver. Mm. Okay, and, and Dynamo is the platform which you see as enabling this. Yeah, uh, definitely. Product. It's sort of like Revit's um, equivalent to another program called Grasshopper, which, which both enable this concept called visual coding, where instead of writing lines of scripts in, in a very confusing way, like most computer programmers have in the past, you sort of connect little blocks of code together that you don't see, but you see like a name of a process. So it might be like a block that says, create a sheet in my model and it expects a few inputs like it says what's the number of your sheet and what's the name and you know what title block does it have and, and you think okay it's, it makes one sheet not not very interesting but then maybe you go back to something that's more traditional that we did such as creating a, a drawing transmittal before we start a project off to storyboard the project and then then you say well maybe we can take all those numbers all those names and a little bit of information out of an excel file and just tell Revit to go on spit out you know 300 sheets um, without us having to go do it manually so that that's when you sort of start to connect i think i think some dots that you know really make it a logical move take some of those those processes away like every time i do one of those processes and i remember the manual way that i did it it feels like i've sort of just you know won back a little bit of time in my life whenever i do it in future so i think like probably that's the that, that's what dynamo does for it and i guess grasshopper in in rhino as well also saves our time in terms of you know, doing some processes that we could do manually and also some processes that we probably couldn't do manually. They're really heavily mathematical processes, such as dividing up a really complex surface that, you know, a computer can really easily analyze, but we'd have to, you know, use a lot of ballpark estimates to really effectively achieve. And one of the things certainly which I hear a lot and I'm really keen for the industry to do is to learn some of the lessons from the last last recession. And the role of the specialist is something which is either going to grow or come under a lot of scrutiny, like all kind of costs, you know, will and are. So just, just wondered kind of what you're seeing and experiencing, the, the need for, for specialists. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I constantly have to think about in my own role as a consultant and previously in a relatively specialized role as a BIM manager in that, you know, do do we need more generalists or do we need more specialists? It it seems to me that, you know, software and workflows and the way that we design buildings, it's it's only getting more complex. And whilst it can be risky to put like all your eggs into a basket of a specialist's brain, for example, I think sometimes you don't, you almost don't have a choice um, whether they're in-house or out-of-house specialists. I think that we are seeing that you can't afford to spread all the skills around the company and hope that everyone just brings it together as a whole. I think you do need those, those specialist types of people that can really bring a project or a company together. And even if you go back into the traditional aspects of, you know, the roles in a company um, without software, I think there was always this, this concept of specialists. We just didn't necessarily look at it the same way. Like you might've had a guy in the office that was really good at doing facade details. I mean, right there, you have a, a specialist of sorts and, and these types of people still exist as well. But I think, you know, we're now just applying the concept to a technology-based approach where you do really need those people that can come in and, you know, really quickly upskill your company or just come in and, and achieve a workflow very quickly with you, essentially bring you up to speed with where maybe some aspects of the industry 
already stand. I think the concept of a specialist is definitely one that's becoming more relevant. At the same time, I guess this this recession that we're seeing um, has sort of shown us that you do have to, you know, anticipate how how you can realistically hold on to a specialist when when maybe their skills aren't necessarily always going to be required. And I guess for me, consulting as a business was a good response to that because you're not obviously embedded in a, in a company and you can sort of come and go as you please and, and they can bring you in and, and say, we'll see you later as soon as they please. And I think maybe that that's what maybe the recession might show us as well, that this idea of the, the nomad skilled person can, can probably be quite, quite realistically supportable in a big company now. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the the pandemic has shown really how reliant businesses are on that on those one or two, you know, whether it's a head of IT and a kind of BIM manager, just the sheer process involved in mobilising projects to be yeah. delivered remotely has I think made us all appreciate just how reliant we are on kind of one mm. or two. I mean, I've got to say, I've seen a lot of BIM managers get the flick during this this, this pandemic, unfortunately, and even some IT managers too. It, once once they set up the remote infrastructure, some of them unfortunately just you know either got furloughed or or let go. So I guess it has been evident that despite the fact the industry does need these specialists in you know difficult times, there there is still a tendency to only keep them when you need them sometimes as well. Yeah, um, particularly given what's gone on at the moment, we've had many guests on here talk about the need to be prepared for change and how some businesses who who were well prepared for what was about to happen have just got obviously a massive step up on those who probably spent a few days trying to figure out well how on earth do we get everyone to work from home? So yeah, they just yeah. pivot on the spot and remobilised. Yeah. One of the other things which really, I suppose, relates to the kind of iron, iron BIM particularly um, and the resistance to change is the mentality of silos in the industry, whether it relates to uh, data standards or structures of, of models, which we know become a lot more important. And I just wondered, I suppose, your thoughts on how we can try and help break down the kind of silo mentality, which will then help accelerate BIM adoption. Yeah, I think that there's there's some efforts already being made to sort of open up some silos that may not have been as open until recently. I mean, good examples are like like industry standards. I always find it quite disappointing that, that these are sometimes locks behind paywalls because, you know, ultimately some of these things are, you know, nationally required. I mean, for example, even like some of the ISO standards, you can't access them publicly. And I know there's been a few lawsuits or cases where they've actually lost the ability to, to hide these standards. So I think like we are seeing a natural pushback on the idea that things can be held behind not only paywalls but just intellectual property walls some some companies pride themselves quite heavily on workflows that really you know don't ultimately contribute to their competitive edge whilst you know their design skills or what do for example their drawing numbering standards or you know their naming conventions they ultimately don't really affect their bottom line when it comes to working for clients and it might save them a little bit of QMS time, but but at the same time, you know, we're seeing that there's a there's a response with the ISOs, for example, or the British standards of trying to consolidate some of those less less crucial things into an open standard. And I think at the same time too, just from a workflows perspective, like having done what I've done on YouTube and just in general undertaking this big big knowledge sharing venture, I have seen that there is just a natural you know sense of thank you for just telling me <laughs> what you can because there is a bit of a a phenomenon where, where companies will, you know, hold some of these workflows quite close to their chest. And, you know, if you go out and, you know, dare tell someone about them, I'm sure they'd, they'd give you a hard time. So it's been, it's been very satisfying to sort of just go against the grain and, you know, take advantage of my position as a consultant to share some of those workflows that probably usually are 
you know, hidden behind, behind walls of knowledge or, you know, walls of time or walls of finance. So I think, yeah, we are entering an age where, where people are expecting things to be a little bit more available and open for the masses. And I think companies will over time mentally sort of reposition on some of those, those things that they think maybe are, you know, worth harboring. Even for example, like the, the platform that you, you developed um, with Arup. I mean, that, that's obviously, you know, something that once upon a time was, you know, in-house and, and not accessible by anyone else. And now, now obviously they you know, they're, they're selling it as they have the right to, but at the same time, it's still, you know, somewhat more open as a, as a, as a workflow than it used to be. So yeah, I think they're all, all examples of where, where we're sort of heading with, with knowledge sharing. Yeah, that's a good point. And it was certainly something which Arup have done with other platforms and, and pieces of software mm-hmm. and IP, which they've, which they've created, which has, has enabled people to, to work, work smarter. So, I mean, it's surprising. I know when we speak to businesses, one thing which comes up sometimes is like, I can't believe no one's thought of this before. And you've, I know you've had that sort of response to some of the tutorials and workflows which you've, which you've put out. And I just wondered really in terms of the, the things I which has surprised you or the what are the things you've put out which have kind of had the biggest response from BIM managers yeah I think probably the the videos I've produced that have had the biggest response have typically actually been the the soft skills so talking about things like you know what what's good about being a BIM manager and you know what's not so good and how can you deal with it that was probably the video I made I made one called the 10 pros and cons of being a BIM manager and it was very personal for me to talk about it, like I really did relate things back to a lot of my personal experiences without, you know, naming companies and naming people, but, but, you know, giving a lot of context to, to what the role really contained. And, and I just got this overwhelming number of messages and comments just saying, Hey, like I can really relate to what you're talking about. Thank you for exposing this, you know, darker side of the industry. Like even, even aspects such as the fact that being a BIM manager can be very lonely because you, you become this intellectual standalone figure that does all these things that no one understands and ultimately a lot of people don't want to understand because they're too busy doing other things and people really related to that just just that sharing of experience i found that they they were usually the more at least like emotionally uh, connectable videos whereas a lot of the technical workflows i've shared have led to a lot of people obviously you know developing new skills and and passions um for example i've got a, a learning series on dynamo and it's probably my my most watched playlist on my channel and I find that they can be good for at least, you know, technically growing people. But if you want to personally grow someone, some of those softer videos have been, have been the way that it's really happened. And I know on one of them, you've kind of broken down some of the the sort of pros and cons, if you like, for BIM managers. So just, just wondered if you could tell us a, a, a bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So I sort of um, just tackle some of the some of the, the best things about being a BIM manager. So like I take 10 really positive aspects to it such as the fact that you get to play with new software, you get to research, you get to be, you know, like a, a really unique role in a company. But then I sort of take the flip sides of, you know, the, not the darker aspects, but the more challenging things that come with those positives, um, such as the fact that you get to do things that are very new. But on the flip side, most people probably won't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> so there's sort of that, that yin-yang of each, um, each experience. And then I just give them like a strategy for how they might be able to, to overcome the challenge and really, really accentuate pro um, that's available. And I think like the, it really did, did strike a, a rather you know, common chord amongst other BIM managers in the industry that might have felt maybe a little bit more alone or solitary in their, um, their trials, in their, in their job. So it was a really positive experience to, to connect with, with more, you know, fellow BIM managers at the time, because at that time I was a BIM manager. 
but also just sort of build up a, a little mini network of people that, you know, actually regularly get in touch with me now um, just because of that video. And I guess they realized, hey, here's someone that actually wants to share like personal experience and not just, you know, make a, a top 10 video that's behind a paywall in a, in a marketing course or something like that. So I think it, it opened up like a level of authenticity to what I do and also, you know, gave me more purpose in what I try to project on my channel and, and connect with people on. And one of the things which has gained a lot of traction is obviously ISO 19650 around the kind of Revit, the changes it and conventions which it forces on on industry. So really, I think maybe people out there might want to know a bit about how maybe you've helped in in that area. Yeah, definitely. There's actually a perfect resource for this. Sort of opened up a discussion on Twitter at one point, which I used to sort of informally connect with people in the in the market and similar like minds, and literally just said, "Hey, everyone in the UK, because you guys are obviously in the thick of it, because ISOs are." pretty much derived from a lot of the British standard workflows that they already have to follow. And I said, you know, here's like three or four things that, you know, most people can't seem to achieve in Revit when they attempt to achieve like an ISO and a British numbering system. And just said, hey, can you tell me what, what you do? And I sort of turned this into an article where I literally just discussed the, the order of events and, you know, what people actually shared with me and how this could be transcribed into a, or a Revit workflow. And we, and we ended up reaching a an actually practical outcome that works, more or less works. And then I've actually been able to share that with other people in the form of like part of my actual BIM Guru template that can achieve this, this numbering standard and revisioning standard. And it was just a really interesting way to sort of bring together a lot of people around the industry at a lot of different levels and a lot of them that were probably in the dark on the ISA standards as well, because they probably will eventually become mandated in a lot of countries. Um, so it's a really good experience to sort of just expose some of the challenges that come with these standards, but also expose people to some solutions that other people had found and maybe hadn't shared as well. That they, they, they weren't necessarily siloed on purpose, but they were just siloed because someone was under the pump and thought, oh, no one needs to know about this. It's just a little solution. But it turned out a lot of people actually did, did want to know about it. Mm, so it was a really good experience, that one. Okay, well, for, thanks, Gavin. One of the things we like to kind of end an, end an episode with is really telling an anecdote or kind of giving a way for people to get ahead where they are, particularly relevant at the moment because there will be people out there who are just doing their best to, well, well done to anyone who's just getting through this. And for anyone who wants to try and, I suppose, get ahead or stand out at the moment, just wondered if, if you'd have any, any advice for them, really. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes quite fresh, actually, because I just, I just came out of a conversation with one of my connections in Sydney that actually got let go today and not even furloughed, unfortunately. So a lot of this actually comes from just, just what I've spoken to him about as well recently. And I think he really got a lot of value out of it. And I think pro probably the main thing I gave him was just to, just to keep yourself going. If you find yourself on a, on a back foot, make sure you keep yourself on a front. So make sure you keep training and educating yourself and accessing a lot of the free content out there that can upskill you so that when you're back back in, in full swing again, whether you're not currently working or you are currently working, but things have slowed down, you can come out swinging because I guess we sort of forget in, in AEC that we don't often get these times to pause and think and slow down a little bit. It's a very rapid, fast industry that you, you burn yourself out on very easily. So it's good to sort of take advantage of these downtimes in a more productive way than what we'd usually be allowed to be given. And I think with that comes like an opportunity to sort of expand your network as well. So start engaging with people on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and maybe YouTube, all these platforms and sort of find your place in that bigger picture as well. Because until about two years ago, I hadn't really 
you know, found my place in the bigger picture. And I feel like now I sort of am, whereas before that I was really just a, you know, a bin manager, just going to work and then coming home at the end of the day and sure, like playing with software, but not connecting with anyone further than maybe like a few people that I know. I think that's also a really big opportunity right now that, you know, everyone is slowing down and engaging with these platforms more in their free time. So you do have those exposure opportunities and there's also a lot of free webinars going around as well. Um, So definitely keep an eye out for those. A lot of them actually on YouTube as well. There's a really good one, I think called your desk university. They've been doing a lot of talks about dynamo and other programs. So maybe think about, you know, starting to watch some of those things too. If you have free time rather than jumping on Netflix, maybe, maybe jump on one of those instead and you might, you might find that you find some new skills that you, you care about. And um, so I think, and I think ultimately one thing that helped me develop my skills was just to self-educate, to take on learning as, as a journey rather than something that someone tells you what to do. So take on your own sort of learning tasks and projects and things that you can sort of separate from your everyday work. And you'll find that your learning probably, probably speeds up as a result of that. And just experiment too, like be curious, don't, don't, um, you know, just limit yourself to one program or one way of working, or say you only do residential projects, maybe research hospital projects, and you might find that you find new passions and, and opportunities. And I guess just brush up on standards too. That's probably the, the, the other thing a lot of people don't really take enough time to do. So, you know, go and give the ISOs a read if you can get access to them or just even your national BIM standards, if you're interested and um, take some time to sort of strengthen your, your base skills so that when you come back in, you, you come in swinging. So yeah, hopefully that helps people have some targets in, in their downtime. Okay. Well, thanks Gavin. What we'll do is we'll include a link to the ISO blog in, in the show notes. And uh, yeah, just finally really want to thank you for, for coming on. I think hopefully everyone um, listening to this has got some actionable value out, out of it. And yeah, just thanks very much for coming on Gavin. Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me on the show. And I, and I definitely invite anyone out there that, that's listening to what we're talking about, actually finding they have questions or they're interested, like don't hesitate to reach out to me. Personally, I'm available on a few platforms. You can contact me on LinkedIn. I think my profile is like the Gavin Crump. I was lucky to get it before someone else showed up, I guess. <laughs> that you can reach me through my YouTube channel. Uh, so drop a comment if you like what you're seeing. Otherwise, feel free to email me in the email that's in the banner of all my videos, which is aussiebimguru at gmail.com. I don't think I even set the name of my channel actually, which is aussiebimguru. <laughs> so similar to my business name, but a little bit different. And if you do have a need for a specialist consultant in BIM, um, don't hesitate to reach out to my business as well. But hopefully those may be relatively contactable in, in these times. Yeah. And just to echo that, if you're kind of looking for ways to, to work, work smarter and in the past, I don't know, you, you've kind of relied on mentors and that's obviously very, very valid. The videos um, which which we've seen from the BIM managers I, I've spoke to, spoken to are getting great great traction so yeah well done for that and thanks yeah well once again thanks very much for coming on yeah thanks for having me and i look forward to seeing more episodes in future